The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Good afternoon and welcome. You are listening to Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. And it is always great to be with you this afternoon. Um, I love hearing from you. And I know we have a lot of great listeners that love to share. So if you want to join in this conversation, go ahead and give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. I'll be with you for the next hour. And hopefully um, I will try to bring you the best information I can. Um, It is always great being back here with the Leslie Marshall Show team. Um, We have a good time, but we also try to give great up-to-speed information. Um, It's been a crazy week. I think we can all agree. And as I am looking at Friday, I am getting more and more excited every day, especially because it's the long weekend. So you get the Monday off. Now, I should have another program about how many people don't get Monday off and what that means for them and their families. Um, But for those of us that are privileged enough to enjoy um, this as a long weekend, I wish you good fortune, happy speed, make sure you have a good cookout. Um, I will be out there as well with my family. Um, And as we start talking about families, many of our regular listeners know um, that my husband and I are the proud parents of three amazing, um, I call them wonder women. Um, in training uh, because they keep things fun (laughs) and exciting to say the least Um, and our next guest um, has done some really really cool things here at CAP Um, for those who are just joining um, my day job is vice president of our legal progress team here at the Center for American Progress which I think happens to be the best think action tank around town but our next guest did something that was really interesting and incredibly creative, and I'm going to bring him into this conversation, Um, none other than Michael Matowitz, who is one of our economists here at the Center for American Progress. He tweets at Mike, M-I-K-E-M-A-D-O-W-I-T-Z. Mike, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. Thanks for having me. So, Mike, I just shared I have three young kids, uh, five, three, and two, and you're also a dad. Yeah, I also sleep really well. I have a <laughs> daughter who's turning one next week and a two-and-a-half-year-old, so it's, so it's a peaceful existence. It's a quiet, nothing happening, it's, you it's know. Intellectual, thoughtful, yeah, you know. Exactly. Um, but for those of us back in the real world, <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the challenges, and I am in the middle of a what I call child care crisis right now because what we've been able to do for the past few years isn't working right now so we're in the midst of trying to figure that out we have one child getting ready to go to kindergarten we have two who are we're fortunate and blessed and privileged enough that we can afford to put our child in pre-k that's not a reality for a lot of families and you guys have done some really interesting work about on this exact topic so why don't you tell our listeners um, about this child care calculator yeah so it's called a calculator um, basically, so I'm an economist. 
I'm married to a mathematician, and when an economist and a mathematician love each other very much, <laughs> there can be children, but you figure out the cost pretty pretty carefully. Um, so I would say if my youngest one's turning three in six months, then roughly three years ago now, uh, we first started asking this question about how are we ever going to afford childcare, and should one of us stay home? Mm-hmm. I should also point out that that was going to be me because <laughs> my wife is a breadwinner. Um, Which is the case in 40% of our households now. Thank yeah. you. Important to note. It is. Um, so I started, you know, when I was tasked with this research assignment, I did what all research assistants do and just Googled it. <laughs> and, you know, I kind of thought I'd find something like, you know, when you like, there are like 20,000 retirement calculators out there where you're like, oh, I'm, I'm 35 and, and I have no money, but like, what do I have to do so that I can retire with enough? So that was sort of what I was looking for. So I'm like, oh, okay, so if I want to take a couple years off and take care of my kids, what's that going to cost me in, in lost income? And then I can compare that with this like astronomically priced daycare option. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I got to say, when I started that, I thought it would be like pretty close. And, you know, that's why I wanted to get the numbers right. Um, and I was kind of surprised I really just couldn't find anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I I stayed up late. I got my <laughs> spreadsheet out. You know, I geeked out for a while. And then I, I sort of I got like geek a... geek out. The geek out is a, key. The, the geek out is hard in our yeah. house. Um, <laughs> you know, so I came up with this thing and I was like, no, I think this is about right. And I showed it to my wife and she, being the mathematician, was like, your math cannot be right. That number is too big. Um and so we were like went back and forth and checked it all, and it really was really, really big. Um, so, I mean, I guess the, the retirement analogy is actually really good here, right? Mm-hmm. So all the retirement calculators tell you, like, you know, you need to get your save on when you're young. And if you can build up some assets when you're really young, you know, that, that makes it a lot easier to retire because the money grows over time. Well, the way most people's careers evolve are you don't make a lot of money while you're young. <laughs> you make more over time. Um and so, you know, if you're going to take time off while you're young, you're sort of, you know, you're, you're slowing your, your wage growth when it's growing the fastest. Right. Um, you know, which is sort of when fertility tells you you're probably going to end up having children for the most part. Um, so anyway, we, you know, we kind of did this and then we did a second version of this when we had kid number two come in. And at that point, when I'd looked around like really hard and was just kind of like floored that this didn't exist... I uh, sort of brought it into work and was like, look, you guys, we should do one of these. Um, I'm not saying it's perfect, but right. I'm saying, like, given what's out there, what families have to work with, you know, I hear people talking about this all the time, and it's like, okay, so I make, like, 40 grand this year. I'm going to pay 20 grand for child care. Should I just quit work? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, you know, if you look at it on a one-year basis, like, that, that's a really close call. You know, if you sort of, if you if you use our calculator, which which sort of factors in, what you're going to lose in retirement savings and raises and stuff over the course of your life. So sort of putting this decision where we put other economic decisions, um, it turns out to not really be very close. If you want to do this yourself, you can. Um, you can go to interactives.americanprogress.org slash childcarecosts, and you can interact with our interactive. Um, but, you know, the kind of rule of thumb is... You know, and these numbers tend to, you know, there's not one number. That's why it's interactive. But, like, you know, if, if the younger you get when you take your time off, the higher the number tends to be. But on average, you can figure you're going to lose three to four times your salary. That's right. For every year you take off. So, you know, we, um, 
I just did a quick, and and we will make sure that we tweet out to all of our friends at Leslie Marshall the um, link so you can find the interactive. Um, and I'll also tweet. This is Michelle Jawando. You can find me on Twitter at Michelle Jawando, Michelle with one L, and you can find Mike as well um, on Twitter. But if I was a female, well, I am a female, but uh, what I put in is um, into the interactive I would be a female, age 23, with a current salary of about $44,000. Age started working full-time, 21. Age you plan to take off for caregiving, I estimated about 29. This is a fic- this is a fiction person, people. I just, just assumed you were 21. <laughs> of look- course I'm 21. Thank you. <laughs> Mike is now my favorite guest of all time. Um, and I put five years being out of the labor force because you figure between zero to five. Uh, that way you don't have to pay for pre-K and the child will go right into yeah, kindergarten, yeah. right? That's the average. So what does that come out to? Total income loss during that period, $710,459. Potential income, $3.9 million. Uh, Lost retirement assets and benefits, $213,000. Lost wage growth, $228,000. Lost wages, $268,000. Like these numbers sound insane, Mike. They're kind of insane. I mean, so this is, you know, you can imagine when my wife is like, you know, when I show this, she's like, no, that is not, you can't be right about this. Um, you know, that, that last number, that last number you said, the lost wages is kind of what, what we hear most people talk about. Yeah. And, you know, if you're looking at it on screen, it's really clear when you're talking about it on the radio, it may not come across, but that's usually the smallest component of this. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's these other costs that we're not usually factoring in in these conversations that really add up and make a big difference for families. So when we come back from the break, um, I want to go into this conversation that we don't have in this country is like preparing for retirement, yes. why this is so important for young families, millennial families, um, and how we can move forward from here and what are some of the things you're recommending we do. You're listening to Michelle Wando on the Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after the break. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great to be with you on this Thursday afternoon. I'm excited because in studio I have none other than Mike Matowitz, who's an economist here at the Center for American Progress. He tweets at Mike, M-I-K-E-M-A-D-O-W-I-T-Z. And if you want to join in the conversation, go ahead and give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. And you can find me on Twitter at Michelle with one L, Jawando, J-W-A-N-D-O. So, Mike, before the break, um, you know, you are definitely pretty famous here at CAP for the for Cap the famous. development. Well, at least for the all the parents. Yeah. <laughs> You are on rock star status um, because these questions about um, how you prepare for being 
a parent and the hidden costs, I think is a conversation that we all have. And then you just decide, okay, I'm just going to jump in into the deep end of the pool and just like go. But at least now you have some info for us, some data. Yeah. I mean, I think that was kind of why I really wanted to do this was, you know, we, we couldn't find the shallow end. Um, (laughs) So we just kind of had to jump in in this and, you know, admittedly our house is probably a little more into doing the math on these things than some um but you know like when you looked around at this stuff you really were just kind of seeing people who were who had like i think like parents magazine had a child care calculator and it was basically like a you know a simple budget and it was like oh well this is what i'm earning this is what my Mm -hmm. life costs Mm -hmm. could i just quit my job sort of thing and you know as someone who's looked at what happens to people's retirement and, Mm -hmm. and earning prospects over time you know reading that kind of stuff is a bit like fingernails on a chalkboard to me. I'm like, but there's so much you're missing. And, you know, like, I, I think that, I think it's awesome to get more time with your kids. And if you can afford to stay home with your kids, which most people who do it are pretty well off and mm-hmm. that's why they can afford it. Mm-hmm. And, you mm-hmm. know, more power to them. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, and, and if you want to do that, I think that's great. Um, my concern is sort of, you know, like we were perhaps being a little focused on like, well, let's figure out what the cost is and then whether we want to pay that cost. Right. right. And, you know, I sort of view this as like, like back in the day when like you could go to a fancy restaurant and they would hand you a menu with no prices and you would order something like we don't do that anymore. Yeah. For um, a reason. Right. But, <laughs> but when it sort of comes to this decision, like that's sort of where we're operating from. And that's it's so like true. a pretty big number to yeah. not have yeah. the price on it. So, you know, I want to have a price in front of us so we could say, you know, do is this what we want to do? Is it worth this to us? You know, because the, you know, it, it it's actually money. Like it's, it's got something to do with how much we're going to have to spend mm-hmm. later in life on, you know, sending our kids to college or just doing things with them. So, you know, I think one piece of the calculator that I, you know, you kind of have a sense of like income, like okay, I'm going to be out of the workforce and I'll lose this, but I didn't even think about retirement. Right. I just it for whatever reason, I don't know if it's the way that we have been conditioned as a people. You just focus on what's in front of you and how you can adjust with your day to day bills. But one of the numbers, um, you know, with our fictional person here, lost retirement assets and benefits, two hundred and thirteen thousand dollars. That is pretty significant. If you're talking if you're thinking about retirement, the average age in this country of retirement somewhere between sixty and sixty five. Yeah. Um, that's a significant amount of money. Yeah, it is. I mean I'm actually you know, so there there are two things that go into that. One is, you know, what your actual employer or self provided retirement stuff looks like. Mm-hmm. We made that something that you can customize to actually be what yours is. Mm. Um, I think the number you're given is is off the default, which we picked off of some national average. Mm -hmm. Um, But we also, the hardest thing about this was we did the Social Security formula, which is, like, really hard, it turns out. Mm. Um, Which, I actually knew about this going into this because, ironically, I am a child of divorced parents. Mm. And at some point, when I was about 10 or so, there was a big fight in my house about whether my mom should quit her job because they were spending all their money in childcare. And she kept her job because she really, really liked it and they could afford that. And that worked out really well for her in a couple of years because when they were divorced, she kind of needed the income <laughs> right, and all that. Right. Um, but, you know, now my dad has partnered with this this fantastic woman and she is she took many years off her childcare. And mm-hmm. so my dad retired a year or two ago and they're sitting there trying to game 
her pension and her benefits to make up for all the years that, that she, she missed when she was working. out of divorce. Because wow. it turns out that some, a lot of these formulas penalize a year of no income yep. pretty heavily. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it strikes me particularly at some of the conversation that we've had here on the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Michelle Jawando and Mike Matowitz in studio. Is we've had conversations in this country about the kind of gig economy, about innovation. Um, and in one bucket, we put kind of those in a this is when we're talking about income and mm-hmm. the economy and how those things move. But we don't talk about child care yeah. as an economic issue. But, I mean, you have here for everyone to see this is an economic health of our country conversation. Yeah, and I, I, I you know, I obviously come at this with the, the econ perspective. I also come at this with, you know, half the time we end up trying to write something here about, you know, what are what are actual implemental policies we have that could raise family incomes? You know, I'm like sheepishly raising my hand and saying childcare, and people are like, "Well, that's that's childcare, that's not economics." And right. I'm, you know, there's a little side agenda in being able to point to these numbers and say, "No, no, this is really a big deal for a lot of families." Is, um, but you know, we've noticed that a lot in terms of you know trying to talk to reporters about it and stuff. Is you talk to somebody, you talk to an economics reporter, you say, "Hey, you know, we've been looking at this thing, and mm-hmm. it's a big deal for family budgets," and they're like, "Yeah, I don't do childcare," and you're yeah. like. Well, I mean, right, it does right. kind of bleed over because right. it's it's affecting your costs and your income. You know, I wonder how much of that is like culture. Um, you yeah. know, I think about the fact that you are um, a well-respected economist. So respected. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the way that, you know, you have brought a lens now, being a parent, you have brought that lens to your work and can now kind of enter this calculator into this larger cultural conversation. But how much of this is that we're like, oh, those are like women, family, personal issues. Those aren't like the hard, tough questions. No, I think that's a that's like a huge problem. And like, honestly, this is one of those like things falling things falling into my lap because I'm like right place, right time in my generation. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'm looking at this decision through with my econ training and it's, it's a pure econ, like in some sense I was looking at it first as a pure econ question. And I think that, you know, start from that perspective, changed where I ended up. I don't know if it's changed where everybody else is covering it yet, but, you know, we're getting there. But we're getting there, and, and we started it today on the Leslie Marshall Show. Mike, you have been a great guest. We thank you so much for coming on. Um, if you want to stay in contact with Mike, you can find him on Twitter at Mike, M-I-K-E, Matowitz, M-A-D-O-W-I-T-Z. Check out the interactive. You can go to the AmericanProgress.org backslash child care costs. Put in your numbers. Find out yourself. This is Michelle Jawanda on the Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after the break talking all things SCOTUS. We'll be right back. afternoon and welcome back. You are listening to Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. And we so appreciate you joining. It's always a good time here. We just had a fantastic conversation about the child care costs um, calculator. And one of the things that I always like to do whenever I'm on the show is to talk about all things on the docket. Um, so whether we're talking about state courts, federal courts, or the Supreme Court, bringing these issues to our amazing listeners is something that's
that's near and dear and personal to me. Um, and you are always great, and you're always engaged in the conversation. And I love for you to join in in this next um, thirty minutes with two great guests, one in studio, and I'm going to give you our number if you want to join in the conversation: eight 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 six Leslie. That's eight 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 six five three seven five four three. And I'm going to bring in our two guests because there's a lot to talk about <laughs> about this last week. So our first guest joining us is Rupali Sharma, who is a legal fellow at the Center for Reproductive Rights. Um, Rupali, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So glad you're here. And joining us in studio, really excited because he happens to be the neighbor of one of the people on my team. So, (laughs) I mean, he's done a lot of other really great things in his career, but proximity to other good people uh, helps. None other than Deepak Gupta, who's the founder of Gupta Wessler. Um, Deepak, among other things, is a Supreme Court appellate litigator. Um, But when I first heard about him um, when I was still on the Hill because he was the first appellate litigator hired um, underneath Elizabeth Warren at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And I was like, this was so smart. I, why didn't we think about doing this before? So, Deepak, welcome to the Leslie Marshall yeah. Show. Thanks for having me. So, this was an interesting week. I found myself at the court uh, pretty frequently um, and felt in some ways that I was both watching um, history in the making. Um, I think when we talk about cases like Whole Woman's Health and Rupali, I'm going to have you talk a little bit about the case, especially because of the great work that the center was engaged in. Um, so in in some senses, it was history. Um, in other senses, there was a tragedy there, right? We are still reeling from the death of Justice Scalia. Um, you had cases like US v. Texas um, that literally you're talking about at least 11 million people whose lives are impacted because the Supreme Court couldn't figure out what to do. And the one thing you expect when you get to the Supreme Court is that you will answer the hard questions that you could not answer before. So this, it, so it was really an interesting week for me. And, you know, Deepak, I don't, I don't know how you just generally felt when the week was over or as we're getting ready to end the week. I mean, I honestly felt uh, relief mm-hmm. because I think, um, you know, if you think back to the beginning of this term and you look at what the docket was going to contain, we were all so I scared. mean, the, the, the fate <laughs> of, of women's right to choose, mm-hmm. um, uh, the fate of affirmative action in universities, mm-hmm. um, the contraception mandate, um, some voting cases, mm-hmm. uh, it looked like a, a term that could do a lot of damage. Yeah. And then all of a sudden in February, and I'll remember probably forever the the moment when Where I learned the news. I, I, I will too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was I was in the grocery store and I saw it on Twitter. I wasn't sure if it was a joke. <laughs> right, that, right. You know, Justice Scalia had passed away. Um, that changed everything, and yeah. it's it's just a reminder of how much hangs in the balance on that one vote. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, you mentioned the immigration case. That was one really big case mm-hmm. where. Unfortunately, um, this injunction is going to stay in effect, and a lot of people's lives are going to be affected by this. 4.3 million people who could have been, been mm-hmm. affected by this this uh, program 
all because of the injunction of a single judge. Right. Um, and that's really... If a you're single lower... You know, for our listeners who may not be familiar, we have this amazing system, um, uh, the third branch of government we don't talk about as much in our country. It's one of the things that we do here at the Center for American Progress with our uh, Why Courts Matter um, team, but there are different levels in the, in the judiciary. And one of the reasons the tech Texas case was so important is a lower court judge on the federal circuit, so it's basically the level beneath the Supreme Court has made this decision, um, and the government was appealing that decision to the Supreme Court because they disagreed with the decision of that lower court. Yeah, and, and the remarkable thing about this is that the challengers, the people challenging the Obama administration's immigration plan, were able to choose a single judge in Texas, mm -hmm. and they knew they were going to get that judge, mm -hmm. and they knew exactly what he thought mm -hmm. about immigration. Mm -hmm. They knew that he was going to be hostile to the administration, and right. so they picked that judge. They got a nationwide injunction from that judge. It goes up to the, the Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, mm -hmm. which covers Texas and other states. This shows you the dysfunction in our system. You actually had two panels that weighed in on That's the immigration right. plan, right? And if you count up the judges and what their votes were, it ends up being, because of the overlap between the two panels, there were two judges who agreed and two judges who disagreed. So they're sort of split two to two, right? And then it goes to the U.S. Supreme Court, and because of the dysfunction in Washington, because we haven't confirmed anyone to replace Justice Scalia, the Supreme Court splits four to four. And That's so, right. so many people's lives are affected by this single sentence that just yep. says, you know, the judgment of the lower court is, is affirmed by an equally divided court. You don't even get a reason. No, no sense. You know, and Rupali, now... We were talking about Texas, and Texas seemed to be the epicenter of so many of these cases this term, whether or not it was affirmative action. Um, earlier in the term, there was a uh, case about representation. Um, then you obviously had U.S. v. Texas, which was the immigration case, and then Whole Woman's Health. Um, and for our listeners who may not be as familiar, can you just kind of share what that case was and how you felt um, at the end of the day on Tuesday. Sure. Um, well, you know, as you can imagine, we're absolutely elated here. Um, in Whole Woman's Health, we had challenged um, two abortion restrictions that Texas had enacted on the pretext that they promoted women's health. Um, one was an admitting privileges requirement that uh, forced doctors to get admitting privileges at local hospitals. And the other was an ASC requirement, which forced abortion facilities, um, some of which have been operating since Roe and um, serving underserved communities, you know, for the past 30 years with absolutely unremarkable safety records to comply with the criteria for ambulatory surgery centers. So neither of the restrictions um, promoted women's health in the least. You know, ACOG and AMA and leading medical experts and organizations around the country um, had established that. We had established that throughout the case. But taken together, they would have forced over 75% of the abortion clinics in Texas to close. And just to give you a sense, there are 5.4 million women of reproductive age in Texas. So you had this situation where even women who had resources and could afford, you know, to travel hundreds of miles or to get childcare or to stay in a hotel, um, you know, we're facing um, ridiculous wait times and we're being pushed later into the pregnancy and really being degraded in the process of trying to exercise their constitutional rights. And so we argued that essentially what Texas was doing was, one, 
um, passing sham laws. What mm-hmm. they really wanted to do was cut off abortion access, and then two, punishing women for exercising their constitutional rights. And so the fact that not only did the court strike down both of the laws statewide, those laws are no longer effect anywhere, um, you know, was was extremely wonderful, but also, I mean, it sent a very clear message, regardless of what sort of abortion restriction it is, an ASC requirement, admitting privileges, um, a non-trap law, um, you can't restrict abortion access without a valid reason. You have to have demonstrated evidence that the restriction serves a valid state purpose. And And so, so when we come back from break, I want you to just share um, with our listeners kind of what trap laws are, because one of the things that I talked about frequently even on Tuesday was that we were in a period with the most restrictions that we've seen in the last five years since the beginning of Roe. So we'll talk a little bit about that when we come back after the break. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. You're listening to the Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Excited to have still in studio Deepak Gupta. We're and you can find him on Twitter at D E E P A K G U P T A Law. And none other than Rupali Sharma, who's a legal fellow at the Center for Reproductive Rights. So Rupali, before the break, we started a conversation and you were sharing with our listeners about trap laws. Now can you tell our listeners kind of what that is in case they're not as familiar. Sure. So TRAP is actually an acronym for Targeted Regulation of Abortion Providers. Um, And what it really gets at are laws that really only restrict abortion care, right? No other medical procedure is um, subject to these sort of laws. And so just to illustrate, in our case, for example, um, the ASC regulation that we talked about earlier, um, Texas imposed that requirement on medication abortion. So women who came in and wanted um, to have an abortion by taking just a theory of pills, there's no surgical procedure involved, had to do it in a multi-million dollar facility. Whereas, you know, you can give birth at home, right? So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, there's this there's this disproportionate focus on abortion care, even though it's, you know, much, much safer than many other procedures that aren't subject to the same restrictions. And one, that's arbitrary and unfair and um, makes life hell for abortion providers and women. Um, But it's also unconstitutional, and the court spoke very loudly on Monday with uh, the decision in our case. Now, you know, I one thing that I walked away with as well is the fact that the decision was five three. You know, to me yep. the and and not only it was five three, but you saw Senator I mean Senator Justice Kennedy. See, we don't want to treat our judges like <laughs> politicians. That's why I leave the courts alone. But um but you even saw uh Justice Kennedy who was um so involved in the Casey decision, um, seemingly to understand what this these sham laws actually were and join with the majority, and I thought that that was incredibly important. Absolutely, and I think what's important to remember is it it wasn't that these particular laws were especially bad, right, or especially heinous. I think the point was to clarify a standard that we've had all along that was articulated in the 1992 Casey decision, Um 
the court, um, the court's opinion on Monday said that that standard has always meant that you can't restrict abortion care without a valid state reason, and you have to demonstrate that reason, right? So they really were reaffirming a standard we've had all along. The problem is that states have been um, bypassing that standard and passing laws on the pretext of protecting women, um, and in the in you know in the course of that, actually shutting down clinics and harming them and subjecting them to the things I had mentioned earlier, which again is long wait times and forcing them to do things like sleep in their car and pawn their possessions because now the cost of procedures has gone up. Um, and so it's wonderful that the court recognized that and didn't limit it to the restrictions in this given case. Mm-hmm. Now, so Deepak, we've spent a lot of time, um, I think, you know, writ large talking about a lot of the really big cases before the court um, because, you know, that's kind of how we are. That's the news cycle. Um, but during the break, you you raised a really important point, and it's probably connected to the great work that you did at CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, um, about some of these smaller cases and the impact of um, these cases on real people's lives. Yeah, I mean, I think when you, I mean, the the Supreme Court is an institution that has an effect on so many aspects of American life. But when we're thinking about how it affects sort of everyday people's lives, you know, it affects us as consumers and workers, and it affects um, the ability of consumers and workers to band together to hold corporations accountable. And, you know, I think most of us don't plan to be plaintiffs in lawsuits. You know, I cer- <laughs> certainly don't plan to. But it matters to me a lot if there's some somebody out there who's able to hold uh, hold powerful institutions accountable. And that, you know, that can make the difference between whether we have, you know, predatory lending practices, like the kind that led to the financial crisis, whether there's wage theft of, of low-wage workers, whether there's systemic race or gender discrimination. And so that's a big deal. And I think, you know, We'll have to see, and a lot of this turns on the election, but I think we might be witnessing kind of the end of the Roberts Court's project of of really trying to limit the ability of people to band together and and hold companies accountable um, through class actions. Mm -hmm. And so there were three big class action cases this term. And uh, they posed an existential threat to people's ability Mm -hmm. to to, to access the courts. And the amazing thing is um, that... um, the class action emerged virtually unscathed. Part of that is because Justice Scalia is no longer in the court, but that's right. not that's not the only reason. Um, and I think you know there's there's one case. There's a case I argued uh, back in 2010 called AT&T versus Concepcion, where the Supreme Court said companies can use the fine print of their contracts to basically exit the court system mm-hmm. um, through through things called arbitration clauses. And, um, you know, that that is a big deal. It's something the Center for American Progress and others are mm-hmm. working on. And the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is writing rules that are about to come out that uh, would effectively overturn that decision um, and allow people to get back um, into the courts. And mm-hmm. so, you know, all those decisions were written by Justice Scalia. So this right. is really, we're at incredibly at like an inflection point where things could really shift. Um, and so it's it's really hard to overstate Um, the importance of the court and what's at stake, uh, you know, in November. And I will highlight for our listeners that it is no surprise you are seeing some of the political attacks, both um, on CFPB as well as threats to cut off their funding. And when you think about the reason why the Bureau was established was with the sole purpose of protecting consumers. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I tell people that this is checkers. It's checkers. No, it's chess. It's not <laughs> checkers. Um, it is a long game, and it's, and it's going to take us to think about it that way. Um 
with the time we have remaining, where do we go from here? Rupali, whether or not we're talking about whole women's help, I, I have no doubt that we're still going to see these cases make their way be, before the Supreme Court because there is a very well-organized, well-funded um, kind of opposition side in these types of cases. Where do we go from here? And Deepak, are we going to get this justice? I mean, I spend a lot of time <laughs> trying to make that possible, but I would love for you to talk about it. So we we'll probably will go to you. Sure. And, you know, I think you're right. I mean, obviously, the fight's not over. Um, I think there are two points. One, as I mentioned earlier, this decision um, provides us a lot of momentum. Um, now we can look to a lot of other laws. Um, the dominoes are already starting to fall. So in Alabama, for instance, the AG isn't going to appeal the admitting privileges win in that state. So that mm. law will be struck down permanently. Um, the court declined to take um, the Mississippi case and the Wisconsin case, both of which involved an admitting privileges requirement. So that law um, is not in effect in either of those places either. Um, so, you know, we can really carry this forward. But an- another point I'd like to make is that, you know, women shouldn't have to run to court every time they need health care, right? right? Like, right, if we didn't right. exist, what would happen, right? And right, right. And all the wonderful people that, that made this um, decision possible, what would happen, right? And so I think we really need to hold other branches of government accountable, too, right? State legislatures, not just stopping them from p- passing pretextual laws, but passing laws that actually affirmatively protect women and that provide access to safe and affordable health care. Uh, same goes for Congress. So I think we just we need to broaden our view and really really push everyone to do their part. Deepak. Yeah. So um, so what is going to happen? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't have a crystal ball. This is a, a cra- This has been a crazy year. Um, and you know every. We didn't in- even talk about the election. Right. Right. <laughs> no, not even ta- not even talking about the election. But, the, but you know, just I think there's such a paralysis um, in American institutions. We're all so closely divided, mm-hmm. and and to see that the that that kind of has like a contagion spread to the Supreme Court and that the Supreme Court is really in paralysis. And it's in, in some ways been trying to hide that by producing decisions that seem like they're deciding these cases without really deciding it. So mm-hmm. the, the Supreme Court this term did a lot of kicking the can yep. Yep. down the road. Kubik and among others. Exactly, yeah. exactly. That's the best example, that the mm-hmm. contraception mandate case. But there are a bunch of other mm-hmm. under-the-radar cases where that happened. And so, you know, the big question you asked is, are we going to get are we going to get this justice? I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens um, when you have this lame duck session. You That's know, right. once the Republican senators have survived their primaries and they're not concerned about a challenge from the far right, are they really going to do better than Merrick Garland, someone who, you know, some Republicans have put forward in the past as as the best they could do? Yeah. Um, and and there's really there's been no line of attack on him that's really landed. I mean he's just he has impeccable because credentials, right. and he's just a, a, an eminently well qualified jurist. And th- what what you know if if he if his nomination fails, um, the Clinton administration could put forward someone you know uh, far to the left of him. So I think you know if if rational action prevails. <laughs> Um, then you know there's there's a, a good chance or decent chance that that he's confirmed, um, and the court really needs a ninth justice. I mean, it cannot function without without a full complement of justices. On July 19th, we hit 125, 125 days since the president announced his nominee to the Supreme Court, um, and it would be significant because this would be the first time in history uh, once we pass that mark where we haven't had even a hearing uh, for our president's nominee. Courts matter, and they matter in our everyday lives, whether or not we think about them or not. 
This has been a great half an hour. Deepak Gupta, who joined us in studio, Rupali Sharma. You can find them both on Twitter. Thank you so much for coming on to the Leslie Marshall Show. Thanks for having us. This is Michelle Jawando. Always love being with you. And I'll be back next week. And have a great one. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love.